we will finish our class series on the life of Jesus, the early years today. Jesus was baptized last week when he was around 30 years old. And his cousin, John the Baptist, continues to minister and preach with vim and vigor. <laughs> John's message is very simple. Turn back to God, forgive each other, and show that you've changed by producing new sorts of fruit. And when people ask him what that means about that fruit part, his answer changes depending on the person. He's, to the rich people, to, the, to those who have more than others, he says, share your food and your clothing and whatever else you have with those in need. To the tax collectors, he says, don't collect more than you're supposed to. And to the soldiers, he says, don't use your power to extort money. Be content with your pay and don't make up false accusations against people. Repentance for John the Baptist has feet on it. It means looking at your life and looking at any injustice you might be doing to someone else. It means noticing inequities between the haves and the have-nots and actually doing something to fix it. It means realizing that other people are as important and valuable as you are and treating them that way. It means telling the truth, even if it does not benefit you personally. John the Baptist is fearless. He's doing most of his baptizing in a place just across the Jordan from Qumran and Jericho. Up to now, we've only heard about Herod Archelaus, who rules the big white region on the west, that includes Jerusalem and Samaria. But if you notice, John's ministry is in the purple part, both Galilee in the north and Perea in the area east of the Jordan. These purple areas are ruled by one of the other Herod brothers, Herod Antipas. Well, sometime early in John's ministry, Herod Antipas goes to Rome to visit his half-brother, Herod Philip. And while he's there, he begins an affair with his sister-in-law, Herodias. Herodias ends up divorcing Philip, marrying Herod Antipas, and joining him in Palestine. John the Baptist calls out Herod Antipas for this and for all the other awful things he's been doing. It's not going to be long before Herod Antipas has enough of this and throws John in prison. But for now, John is still free and trying to help as many people as he can. So what happens to Jesus after he's baptized? Well, we actually have two different versions in the Bible. John the disciple writes that the very next day, Jesus begins calling his disciples. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a different version. So we're going to go with the majority here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say Jesus first goes into the wilderness, led there by the Holy Spirit. Your Bible translations will have something along these lines. Matthew says Jesus is led up into the wilderness. Notice the up. 
and picture the Judean desert with those mountains with the caves in them. This is mountainous wilderness, not flat desert. And also notice that in all three accounts, Jesus goes into the wilderness in response to the Holy Spirit. Mark's version, which we know is likely the earliest version, says the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The word translated drove can mean thrown, cast out, banished. It is a word of urgent intent. This wilderness experience is somehow crucial, necessary for Jesus as he stands on the threshold of his ministry. Why is it so urgent? What happens in the wilderness? Matthew is pretty explicit that the whole purpose of the wilderness experience is for Jesus to be tempted by the devil. Mark and Luke's wording is a little more passive. They make it sound like eh, the devil just happens to show up and tempt him. I tend to lean towards Matthew's interpretation. I, like Matthew, think there is a purpose to this temptation, but that is just my opinion. You get to, you get to interpret this too. I'm, guess, I'm giving you all the information. You get to interpret this your way. The Greek word for tempted here is the word that means to test or to try, like you would test or try the strength of steel. Our English word tempt has a narrower meaning, but the Greek gives a richness that invites some interesting imagery. I, I imagine testing or trying a sword, the sword of the spirit, perhaps. It's as if the Holy Spirit has been preparing Jesus his whole life for such a time as this. He's about to enter into ministry, and this is almost like a final exam before graduation. It proves to Jesus that he is ready. God, of course, already knows he's ready, but Jesus needs to face his own human struggles and any weak spots before he goes out into the world. The words here for devil, diabolos, or Satan, satanas, both mean the same thing. They mean the adversary the false accuser. Devil has a broader usage in Greek and can also mean a backbiter, you know, anyone whose intent is to cause harm. So what does this culture mean when they say the devil or Satan in this context? How would this land for Jews of Jesus' time? To understand this, we need to look back to the teachings of the Hebrew Bible. The word Satan is a transliteration of the Hebrew word Satan. Hebrew is read from right to left. So you can see that we literally made an English word out of the Hebrew letters S-A-T-A-N, Satan. This word in Hebrew is the regular normal word for any adversary, not Satan, as we would think of him, you know, this any adversary, it's used all over the Hebrew Bible, and it's normally translated simply as adversary. It can be an adversary in court, an adversary in war, any adversary. 
There are only a couple of places in the whole Hebrew Bible where the word adversary is presented as a personification of evil with Satan as a sentient being and with only two small exceptions that we'll look at. All of the references to Satan are in the introduction to the book of Job. In that introduction to the book of Job, the scene is the heavenly court of God and the sons of Elohim and this adversary come in to hang out with God. The word Elohim is plural and means gods, but it is often translated in the singular. So this phrase could mean sons of gods, which would be typical of the general religious beliefs of the broader cultures in the area. Or it could mean sons of God, which would be a Hebrew understanding. In the various cultures of the ancient Near East, as well as in Greece and in the Roman culture, there are many stories of heavenly courts where various gods gather and capriciously decide the fate of humans. The intro to Job is set up exactly like those sorts of ancient stories. It's a trope. And in these stories, there is often a God in the council of gods who is a troublemaker. And that is the case in this story in the intro to Job. The troublemaker in this story is named the adversary, Hasatan. Ha means the in Hebrew. So Hasatan is the adversary. The intro is completely self-contained. If you go back and read it, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's so much like other stories circulating in the ancient world that scholars and I think that the writer of the book of Job has probably repurposed a story people are familiar with in order to set up what he wants to say in his book. I go into a lot more detail about this in class number 67 on Job in the class series called The Exile and the Return. For our purposes here, the point is that this intro to Job is probably not representative of ancient Hebrew theology about evil, but is more likely representative of the theology of the surrounding cultures. The Hebrew Bible overwhelmingly and consistently presents evil as something people do, not as a separate persona called Satan. There are only two places in the entire Hebrew Bible outside of the intro to Job where evil is personified, Satan. One is a really random verse in 1 Chronicles 21.1 that says Satan stood against Israel and caused King David to count his fighting men. That verse does not actually say Ha-Satan. It doesn't say the Satan. It only says Satan, which means it could be translated as an adversary. It is translated as Satan personified because of the idea of standing up. But it could be an angel or even a person who suggested this to King David. So definitely not a verse to hang your theology on. And the only other place 
is in Zechariah 3, in a dream Zechariah has. He dreams the high priest is being accused by the adversary, Hasatan, and the Lord is rebuking the adversary for it. It's a dream, folks. It's a visual representation. It makes sense that in a dream, good and evil players would be personified. And it also stands to reason that we wouldn't want to hang our theology on symbolism in a single dream in a single verse. And that's it. Outside of these unique and explainable occurrences, there is no Satan in the Hebrew Bible. Evil in the Hebrew Bible overwhelmingly has to do with people's choices, not with being tempted by evil personified as Satan. In fact, the words tempt and temptation do not appear anywhere in the Hebrew Bible. The idea of a female seductress preying on young men shows up several times in the Hebrew Bible. But outside of the introduction to Job and the single verse in First Chronicles, there is no Satan in the Hebrew Bible. So where does the idea of an actual devil who tempts people come from? How did that idea get introduced to the Jews? Well, hundreds of years before Jesus, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were destroyed, and the Jews were carried off into captivity and scattered throughout Assyria, Persia, Egypt, and all kinds of other countries. Israel and Judah are represented by that red star, and the places they are scattered are all of that green part. And all the countries in green happen to have long traditions of personifying gods and goddesses, both good and evil. The Jews from the northern kingdom of Israel are scattered in that dark green area and are never heard from again. They are dispersed. It's called the diaspora. But when the southern kingdom of Judah is defeated 150 years later, Nebuchadnezzar carries off the remaining Jewish population as a group. He doesn't scatter them. He takes them as a group. And the Jews who are taken captive together form a community in exile in Babylon. And that's when and where much of the Hebrew Bible gets written down. The Jewish community in exile in Babylon writes their history in retrospect. And they're doing it while being assimilated into the Babylonian culture. The Babylonian religion of Zoroastrianism is heavily into the personification of good and evil. So it's natural that this thinking, uh, you know, this personification of good and evil begins to creep into the Hebrew culture during the years of exile. The study guide for class 73, which is part of the exile and the return class series, has a great summary of the beliefs of these various nations if you want to know more about where these ideas are coming from. And when we studied the Apocrypha, we saw vivid examples of this sort of thinking coming up during the time of the Maccabees in the period between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. So when the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
talk about Jesus being tested by the devil, they are reflecting a shift in the Jewish understanding of evil. It is a shift that occurred over the last 600 years of their history, the time in between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And that's a long enough time that by the time of Jesus, this personification of evil is taken as an accepted fact. This is the culture in which Jesus himself is raised. It's the culture in which we have been raised. It's hard for many of us to conceive of a worldview without a personified Satan. It's part of our vocabulary and culture, and it was part of Jesus's human vocabulary and culture. So this may be a place of stretching for you. I'm not saying there is or is not a Satan personified. I personally tend to lead towards the Hebrew understanding that evil is something people choose to do. But I grew up in a worldview that sees Satan as strongly personified. So I totally understand and respect that view too. All I'm saying here is that in the New Testament, Satan and evil spirits are personified. Therefore, in this class, we're going to take that at face value because that's the culture the writers understood. The reason I'm making such a big deal out of it is that because we know the personification is a cultural shift, we know the personification of evil is part of the wrapping paper. It is not the gift. And we don't want it to obscure the gift the writers are trying to convey to us. So when we encounter these personifications of Satan or evil spirits or demons, we are not going to let that distract us from what the writer's actual underlying point is. So after his baptism, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit and is led up into the Judean wilderness. There he is tried and tested for 40 days. In the Bible, The number 40 is used as shorthand for a lot of something. In the story of Noah, it rains 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years. Moses was on Mount Sinai with the Lord, getting the Ten Commandments for 40 days and 40 nights. In the book of Judges, after each of the good judges, Othniel, Deborah, and Gideon, the land had rest for 40 years. When the Israelites did evil, the Lord gave them into the hands of their enemies for 40 years. See the pattern here? 40 simply means that Jesus was in the wilderness a long time. And during that long period, Jesus fasted. The thing about fasting is that it's not something you do to punish your body. And Jesus is clearly not virtue signaling here like the religious elite would do when they fasted. There are, at least in my experience, two main purposes of fasting. One is to gather yourself fully into the present. Your body lives in the present, not the past nor the future. So when your hunger pains happen, They help jolt you out of anything you're worried about in the past or the future, and they remind you to be fully present in this moment. 
the corresponding purpose is that in each present moment, your desire is to turn your heart, soul, mind, and body towards God. As Christians, that is our call every day. But we get all tangled up in the business of living and we forget to be present to God in every moment. So we fast so we can let the hunger pains remind us to stop and turn wholeheartedly to an awareness of the presence of God. Given this, you can probably see why there are two types of fast. One is a regularly scheduled fast that you do say weekly as a way to intentionally have time with God that is more than just a quick prayer during the day. And the other reason to fast is if there is an urgent need, someone is ill, the nation is threatened, or a a group of people want to repent and change course, that sort of thing. It is this second kind of fast, the urgent kind, that Jesus is on. He is about to begin his ministry. He needs to know if he is ready. Is this the right time? Is he understanding God clearly? And so he begins a fast, and it is a long fast. And during it, he is tested and tried so he can know whether he is indeed ready. Of course, the very first thing that happens on a fast is that you get hungry. That's sort of the point. But Jesus fasts so long that he's really having to struggle with his body. His spirit wants to continue to fast, but his body is becoming insistent on food. And Satan comes with words that seem right on the surface, but are somehow deeply wrong. In Luke's account, Satan says, if you are the son of God, command these rocks to turn into bread. And that gives us some insight into what Jesus is wrestling with. He has the power to do miracles, but can he use that power for himself? And the deeper question is, what is the purpose of a miracle? As Christians, We all probably have opinions about this, but in this class, we are learning to use reliable, consistent backpack tools. So our answers are not swayed by opinion, but are based on more solid ground. One of our most helpful backpack tools is to go back and see how a concept has been used before in the Hebrew Bible. As you probably know, the Hebrew Bible is stuffed full of miracles. So let's look at some of the more famous ones so we can examine them to see if they can shed light on our question. The first thing we notice when we begin searching the Hebrew Bible for miracles is that the Hebrew word for miracles is signs. The word literally means a sign, as in a banner. It's a billboard from God. That is so interesting. I don't think that's how we tend to think of miracles. Let's look at a couple of examples. First, we'll look at what God says to Moses at the burning bush. When God tells Moses to go tell the Israelites that he's got to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the Hebrew slaves go, Moses said, but God, what if the Israelites don't believe me? What if they think I'm making all this up? 
And God says to tell them, I am who I am has sent you. And there are many ways to translate this name of God. But the important part is that God's answer to Moses' question is that he should tell the Israelites that the God who brings things into being is the one telling him to go to Pharaoh on their behalf. There must have been a skeptical look on Moses' face because God relents a little at this point and says, okay, and I will give you these two signs. You can show them. And God gives Moses the power to throw his staff on the ground. And when it turns into a snake, he's able to pick it up without getting bit and it turns back into a staff. And the second sign is he can put his hand inside his coat His hand turns leprous, and then when he puts it back inside his coat, it's healed. So these are two pretty cool signs, the Hebrew word for miracles. But notice why Moses is given the power to do miracles. It's not just a magic trick. There is a purpose here. It's so Moses can prove that God, really, truly God, is the source of the words Moses is speaking. And the words Moses speaks are that God has heard the cries of his people. God is delivering you from oppression. And God is more powerful than empire. And this turns out to be the pattern throughout the entire Hebrew Bible. This context of what God is saying Why a miracle is being done, why there is a sign, is consistent throughout the Hebrew Bible. There are many, many such stories where there are dramatic miracles, signs. In this exact context, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, the story of Gideon and the 300 warriors, so many stories, and every time It is to show that God is here to fight for you. God is here to provide for you. God is here for you. So when Jesus is faced with the temptation to use his power to do miracles, he stops and thinks. He's definitely hungry. He needs the food. Why not turn rocks into food? And the answer is because miracles are generally intended to be signs, billboards. They are a way for God to reveal to people that he is God and he is present. They are a way for God to get our attention. And Jesus being hungry out here in the desert doesn't really fit that overarching purpose, does it? So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 back to Satan. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. One of our backpack tools is to always go back and look at the original context of any quote from the Hebrew Bible. So let's do that. This quote is from a part of the Hebrew Bible where Moses is nearing death and is giving his last big speech to the Hebrews before they enter the promised land. Moses says, never forget 
how God has led you through the wilderness all these years to humble you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with this miracle of manna, something you've never even heard of before, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Notice God's purpose for the Israelites here, to humble them. It is so they would know that they are not God. It's not to humiliate them. It's to let them know that the burden for their care is not on their shoulders or even Moses' shoulders. It's on God's shoulders. We are not God. God is God. God is the provider. And so when we become hungry, God feeds us. God feeds us literal physical food, but what the Israelites learn from this whole object lesson with the manna in the wilderness is that what really feeds us is not this physical food. What actually feeds us is the living word of God. God feeds us life, and this is what Jesus remembers. Jesus does not need to use miracles to turn the stones to food. In fact, instead of using a miracle, it is more important that he humbly trusts God to take care of his bodily needs in due time. What gives Jesus life is not the physical food, but the nourishment that comes from being wholly focused on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that great? Using our backpack tools makes this whole exchange about turning stones into food makes so much more sense. It wasn't about food. It was about the appropriate use of miracles. Let's do the next one. Next, Satan takes Jesus up to the highest point of the temple and quotes scripture to him again. This reminds me that when well-meaning and sincere people quote scripture to you, you can feel almost helpless to defend yourself if they're taking it out of context and are misapplying it, right? Satan is taking on that voice. He's hitting Jesus below the belt by quoting scripture to him as justification for something that is somehow very wrong. Satan tells Jesus to basically prove he's son of God by jumping off the high place. And if he's really the son of God, the scripture says God will send angels to save him. Let's go back and look at the passage Satan's quoting. It's from Psalm 91. If you say God is my shelter and God actually is your home, no evil will take advantage of you. No plague will approach your dwelling for he will command his angels to pay attention to your journey. They will carry you in the palm of their hands so that you will not even stub your toe. Well, that's a great quote from Satan. Great proof text. And it's exactly the sort of thing that confuses all of us. It seems to say that if we believe that God is our protector and our provider and we draw close to God, then nothing bad can ever happen to us. We won't go hungry. We won't fall ill. And yet we all know that is not our lived experience. So I'm very interested to see how Jesus responds to this one. Jesus responds with his own quote. Jesus says, do not put God to the test. 
What does that mean? Why is that an answer to Satan? As usual, these quotes are shorthand for whole passages. Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16. It's a place where Moses is speaking to the Hebrews. Moses has just given them the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Moses tells them not to put the Lord to test like they did at Massah. So what happened at Massah, you ask? Well, we have to look at Exodus 17 for that answer. The incident at Massah happens almost immediately after the Lord parted the Red Sea. The Hebrews have seen the might of the ten plagues and have rejoiced after God defended them from the armies of Pharaoh. But now they're a day or two past that, and it's starting to dawn on them that they're nothing more than a bunch of slaves wandering around in the wilderness following a giant cloud. Now, all the Hebrews can think about is that they are tired and hungry and thirsty and probably lost. Never mind that the cloud turns into a pillar of fire at night, which is pretty miraculous. The Hebrews are doubting the evidence of God's love. They feel alone. All the things Jesus is feeling in this exact moment in his own wilderness. And the people turn on Moses and say, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to let us die of thirst? Give us water. And Moses says, why are you asking me? Why are you testing God? Moses is using the Hebrew word testing that corresponds to exactly what's happening to Jesus. Moses is reminding the people that Moses is not their protector and provider. God is, and they should be trusting God, not making God prove himself to them. Nevertheless, the Lord says he himself will go stand by a particular rock and that Moses is to strike the rock where he sees God standing and water will come gushing out. And of course, that's exactly what happens. And they name that place Massah, which means testing. So when Satan quotes scripture saying that if you trust God, nothing bad will happen to you, Jesus replies, do not put God to the test. And in context, Jesus is saying, you must trust God no matter what life throws at you, no matter what it looks like. You have to trust that God has got you. You shouldn't jump off the cliff to make God prove that he's got you. So Satan tries one more time. He takes Jesus up on a very high mountain and shows him all the riches and kingdoms of the world, I suppose in a grand and glorious vision. According to Luke, Satan says, I will give you authority over all of this and you can have all the glory. It has been handed over to me and I can give it to whomever I wish. And I will give it all to you if you will prostrate yourself before me and acknowledge that I am God. He is offering Jesus riches and kingdoms and people and all the power and honor in the world. And this must somehow be Jesus' hardest test. We'll ponder this in our breakout session. But for the moment, Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. 
and he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. Jesus says, worship only the Lord your God, only serve God. I want to point out here that the Hebrew and even the Greek Septuagint version of this passage in Deuteronomy both use the word fear instead of worship here. The scriptures say, fear the Lord your God. But Jesus substitutes the word worship. And I love this insight from Jesus. We talked about this in some of the other class series in the Hebrew Bible. Fearing the Lord is not being afraid of him, quite the opposite. It is being humble before him. It is acknowledging deep down that God is God and we are not. So Satan gives up and angels come to minister to Jesus. There is no way to fight with someone who continues to remain utterly humble before God. Someone who refuses to accept power for themselves or use it for themselves or even use it to do great and wonderful things for God. Jesus has just taught us that the end never justifies the means. The most important thing always is not what we accomplish, but is that we are humble before God, dwelling in God, waiting on God, and trusting in God, for all our needs. And that's a thought we probably need to sit with quietly for a bit in our alone time. But for now, let's use our breakout sessions to ponder the significance of that third test where Satan offers Jesus all the riches and power in the world. And we were just talking about, God, our, our group was talking a little bit about the you know, God as fully human or Jesus as fully human versus Jesus as fully God. And, you know, Jesus being humble before God and yet he is God and kind of that. And so he had found this verse. Thanks. Philippians 2, 6, the Kenosis passage where it says, being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I mean, if that was ultimately his purpose, to me, if this is a, a test, the test was, are you willing to, you know, just submit and humble yourself, even though you have all the advantages you could. So Beautiful. And we were saying how easy it is to, back to your reminder of us not getting distracted by the wrapping. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just so easy to jump into discussions about Satan and, you know, things where we're theological debate versus back to the, the message or how you said the gift in it of, I was bringing up even the story from Genesis where we're talking about the serpent. I'm like, well, there it wasn't really personified. It was made in, you know, Satan was in an animal and yet it's easy to get distracted by that versus the continued theme or the gift of being humble, you know, even with Adam and Eve, humbling themselves before the Lord, um, you know, knowing that he's God and they're not, um, you know, trusting the plan, the purpose, the mm-hmm. um, design. So, so Jesus, you know, when Satan tempted, tested, tried Jesus, he, he used three things. He said he used his physical hunger. He used 
the whole idea that, oh, you're the son of God, are you really? Well, prove it, you know? And the third one was all the power in the world. All the power over all of the kingdoms of all of the world. Why that? Why was Jesus tried with that? I mean, the we, last we one? Talking, oh, mm-hmm. go ahead, Woody. Yeah, the last one. Mm-hmm. I think it's because the desire for power is such a, in my opinion, a universal human trait. We all seem to want more, no matter what we have. If we have nothing, we still want more. If we have a lot, we want more. In our group, Eric, and by the way, hi, everybody. I, I wish I could, you could see me, but it's so lovely to see all your faces. I've missed you. So um, it, Erica made the, the point about mentally what kind of state he would have been in after all this time, and we all, we always know about the body, you know, it's weak. He hasn't had these things, but even the mental state. And for me, I just wondered if the, if the personification is actually temptation, because sometimes it's not easy to follow God. And it would be really easy for Jesus to skip his fate and use the power that he has to change his destiny. How do you think Jesus would have used all that power? What, why was this tempting for him? What would he see as the advantage here? Well, I thought possibly because I was taught that, you know, God is fully human and fully God, that he needed to test or the temptation would be as fully human part going, uh, yeah, I'll take that. But the God part had to come through and say that's not our purpose and when we were talking about it i had mentioned it would have been a different message if the new testament had come from a ruling king than a carpenter's son you know what would that's a great point what would i see the i see the temptation as being a very human thing you know i see this as 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 jesus being fully human in this moment wrestling with what it means to be human because he's about to come into his ministry with us as humans you know and, and what and so, would he, it mean? and so he actually experienced temptation oh right and, and and I guess, you know, he, he could have said, well, if I'm king, if I have all power, I can I can do good things for the people. I can uh, make sure they're all fed and and housed and that sort of thing. He, so he would have good intentions, but he would have done it by taking on this role of king or whatever you call it. Yeah, so let's explore that a little bit. Mary, you had, had something? Power, yeah, if he had all the power, I would have just, if I was Jesus, which I'm not, <laughs> but I would have figured out a way for me to not die on the cross, to live longer and 
Dunman ministry more than three years. You know, if he were to have given him that power, he probably, I, I don't know, but I, my first thought is if I have a chance to live and not die, I'm going to pick living potentially. Yeah. yeah. That's what I meant by escaping your fate. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, if he had a big thick autobiography of his ministry, how many of us would be delving into that as opposed to the short, concise ministry that he did have, where we can reach into that and find our purpose? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also would have been Jesus taking over the free will of the people. Instead of letting them make the choices to choose God and not choose evil. What would be the temptation to us to be offered that kind of power? Mary, you had something to say. Well, and I said it in my my group, and uh, so I bear with me on redundancy. But I have to take all this and put it in located in geopolitical time now. I mean, that's, to me, the, the dynamism of, of the good news of the gospel. And I was telling the group at one point in my professional career, I was a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. for AT&T, and I would be in rooms where the prevailing power, and I'm not painting, please don't hear me literally, that I'm painting these people as the devil and these people as, as God. But just the environment of where temptation can be in a real applied sense, you know, they would want to vote for this person sitting in front of them. And they would begin to promise things to them that if you vote with me, I will give you the road in Podunk, Idaho, you know, is part of the package. And, you know, and I saw people, I, it was a very sacred environment for me. Some people would say, it's not a place I want to be or see. You don't want to know how to make sausage laws, but it's the humanness of us. And you would see people wrestling with their own moral convictions and their own, the God in them. The, you know, we are fully human, fully divine, I believe. And so that to me was a real example of watching that temptation. You know, if I do this, I'm going to get all this. But I didn't walk in this room. I had my own moral and ethical sense. And, you know, so that to me was an interesting thing for me to be party to, you know, to see. And it goes on every day in our lives all around us. You know, don't you think? I mean, that's why. Anyway. Yeah. So what do we, what do we, how do we answer the question? Well, but look at all the good I could do. So I I used to teach a a novel called Dragon Wings about the Chinese immigration. And there's a quote in there that was said several times and I apply it to everything. And uh, he said things like, um, you know, weapons in the hand of the superior man are a good thing. Meaning that it's too easy to take something that's supposed to benefit everybody, like the internet, and it be warped into something that's harmful and destructive. And so I think, I also think, you know, would Jesus be tempted to use his power all the time to show that he does have the power? 
faith is hard. That's the whole point of it is we are asked to believe something that we don't get to see on a grand scale every day. So let me throw another word out here for reflection in this context, the word control. Sure. That's the weapon in the hands of a superior man versus, yeah. Is it possible that what was tempting to Jesus about this is that he could control the power? You see what I mean? What I'm saying? If somebody gives you power over all the people of the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, well, that's exactly what God promised. I mean, that's what he had as, you know, Messiah, right? Theoretically. And, 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 and I'm just wondering if the difference between what God offers and what the world offers is who exactly is in control here? Is it us? Or are we going to be it? Is it, is it us with the control to now be able to do the good things? Or are we willing to let the good things come from God? I think that begs the question and it's something I've wrestled with for years and I that we'll get to it at some point, but it's that whole um, understanding of free will, which is agency of the individual, of the God-created image of God, you know, fully human, fully divine, and God's will. And I will be very honest with you. I have looked at this for several years. I have listened to philosophers and theologians, and I'm, it's still not peaceful in my heart. I have, and maybe that's part of my journey is never to have the answer. We're called to rest in the unknowing. But I think begging that question, Gail, takes us back, and Julia asked of us in our group, where does the peace on fasting fit? And to me, that's the time of discernment when you sit with yourself as an individual alone in solitude with your God, you know, that that helps you resolve some of those issues. If we don't do that and we're only in the world, I'm, I, I'm not so encouraged by <laughs> sometimes how we are want to make decisions, but I think discernment and fasting, however you want to use the word for me, it's discernment sitting in the quiet and doing that allows the God in me to come forth. I am wrestling. I am joking. I am wrestling in that moment of solitude before I step out to the world. But I, I, I hope at some point we'll talk about free will versus God's will. I, that totally intrigues me. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Nope, that's okay. Cause I'm, I'm wondering, um, you know, it wasn't just power that Satan tempted him with, with this vision of the world. It was also glory, getting the glory. Ooh. Ooh. We talked about that a bit in our group and just talked a little bit in different ways about how God, Jesus, already had that glory, but he was somewhat subservient to God the Father. 
it seems as though. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, Julia, he, we, we give him the glory now, but did he have it back then when he was in the desert? Yeah, that's hard to know because as we were talking about it, he was just starting his ministry. He didn't have his disciples. He didn't have his positive reinforcement around him. <clears throat> Pardon me. But he was just baptized and now starting to work on his outline of what he was going to do in life and thinking about it. And then we're going to have a few short years come to follow up on, but he didn't really have all that reinforcement and support, you know, it's hard. It's weird to think about Jesus needing a support system, but he had one. Well, and, and I think that it gets back to what John brought up at the beginning that in order to come and be with us in this way, Jesus had to empty himself completely and become fully human. And so that, that, that makes sense in that, from that perspective that he would need support, just like the rest of us do. That his body would get hungry, that, that he, would, he would feel the barbs of, you know, well, prove that you're the son of God, you know? That that and that he would be tempted by the the whole idea of well, wouldn't it be better if if I just got made if I was king? What if I was just king of the world? This would all work a lot easier that way, you know. <laughs> I would I would do all the good things. I would have the capability to do all the good things, and 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 yeah. all the glory would come to to jesus that is real temptation that is for some reason that was real temptation to him i don't think we can gloss this over what i want to do is pull off the layers of shellac we've got on jesus mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i want you to understand that this was a real temptation and and i think that it is a temptation that we face and yeah. it kind of gets to what mary was talking about how do we know whether we are resting control from God over a situation or we are actually simply using the gifts God gave us to work in the world? And that wrestling is so human in us. I, I think it's always been my experience that again, I, I, I like the fact that you don't want to gloss over the temptation because I that wrestling is, and we do it in community, which is that support system Joey was talking about. Mm -hmm. I think he helps us do that. And, uh, you know, need our moments of solitude, but I also need all of you in order to keep me in faith, you know? Mm -hmm. Don't do it alone. Mm -hmm. Ellen, you had something. John. John. So I think for me, or for most humans, maybe one of the signs that you're trying to pull control is that you want credit for things. And I makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount where Muslim is important enough because he talked about, 
hey, if you're praying, if you're giving, you know, do it in private. And I don't think it meant my understanding of that scripture does not mean doing it in private, but it's if you're doing it because you want the credit, that's a, a pride thing and a control thing, which I think is a very it's a, a piece that most of us, if not all of us humans, struggle with. So I imagine he did too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. It kind of brings it to the forefront. I know a lot of people I've heard, you know, people say that, you know, well, God never, Jesus never had temper tantrum when he was a little kid because he was God and that would be sinning and God never, or Jesus never sinned. But so that kind of makes it his experience on earth less than what humans face. But if he had to drain himself out of his God part and just be human until he was called by God, then that makes perfect sense to why he did what he did when he was a kid. He had the same experiences he had to have to understand us. I think there is a great big piece of trust that Jesus had to have to trust that he was the Messiah, that there was a purpose for his life. I think this is, I think he's learning this as he grows up. I think he's growing into this. I think he's studying the scriptures. He's reading the prophecies, but he's, and he's trying to find where his single focus needs to be. And say, hey, Al, can, I, uh -huh. can I ask a question? It's Shirley. I'm off camera, but. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Hi, Shirley. Um, do you think that in order to become human, Jesus had to give up some of the God attributes, like being all knowing, for example? I don't have an answer for that because that is not made clear to us in these scriptures. It's, and so people by, by Woody people, people um, have built whole theological systems around this. And I try to stay in the text. And so what I would encourage us to think about is how do we experience the divine in us? And that would be a whole lot like <laughs> how Jesus experienced the divine in him. I think that the temptations for us are very similar to the temptations for him. And I think he had to simply choose to trust God. I think he had to come to a point where he understood that it wasn't about him, that it was about God and that he was the channel for God, that he needed to self-efface and be simply be pointing the people towards God, connecting us to God. That is what he was sent to do. That's what we've learned. You know, and it's so easy to fall over into, yeah, but look at all the good stuff I can do. And what, golly, I've got power to do miracles. Think what I can do, you know, 
if I just take the control back, if I make it about me. And it's not that I think that we do that intentionally or maliciously. I think we do it with good intentions. And I, and, and, and I think that we do it when we see the end goal and try to get there from here ourselves in our own way. I think rather than paying attention to who we are being and how we are being in our relationships with people, making sure that we're getting out from in between people and God. How easy would it have been for Jesus to take the glory for those miracles on himself. People put it on him. They, he was a celebrity. They followed him all over the place, right? He had to lay that down every day, I'm sure. How seductive is that? But anyway, we're, we're over time. Any other observations, thoughts? Well, Gail, just what you just said, <clears throat> I would think, as was the history with the Hebrew Bible and now the New Testament, people were very judgmental. There was a lot of rules. There was a lot of judging and finger pointing and consequences. And when Christ came, Jesus's message, I think, for me, boils down to let's quit worrying about that and just love each other. You know, and we could, we still are working on that in today's society. It's still here, you know, and we just love each other. So mm-hmm. I'm glad he didn't take the, the easy ride. Right? For real. So they personified Satan as a person for an explanation about the temptations. Right. Everyone it's just had. the way they looked at how you get tempted and why you get tempted. That's how they saw, you know, you know all about the Greek and Roman gods and how, yeah. they, you know, that's the world they lived in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And evil is evil. And it doesn't really matter to me how you picture it. <laughs> that's not the point, you know? So, all right. That was a good discussion, folks. And we will, um, next week, we will start a whole new series and it will be focused on Jesus' teachings and his ministry. So see you next week. Thank you, Gail. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye, Bye, everybody. everybody.